Much like a child, a film has many parents. That is to say, many individuals who act like parents, or that by aversion. Hey friends, you're listening to Pot of Bang, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Sorry for the delay. Evidently, I've been stuck in fucking chicken town myself. But I made a lot of progress in the next few episodes, so I'm looking to turn those relatively quick. So, stage five of The Sopranos is our destination today. An episode I find myself coming back to every time I need to fully commit to something. It was beautifully written by Terrence Winter, directed by Alan Taylor, who flexes this episode with various elements, separating himself from the pack across all his projects. Many of the best episodes of series he's been a part of are, of course, the ones he directed. Equally appropriate for this meta-layered hour, it was shot by Alec Sakharov. This episode originally aired on April 15th, 2007. HBO synopsis, Tony finds art imitating life at the Cleaver premiere. In prison, Johnny Sack copes with more bad news. A great synopsis in that by art imitating life, and since this show is an inception-level meditation on art imitating life, showing you how the fam do, like Talib Kweli, no less, within the confines of a TV box or whatever apparatus might apply to you at this present time, we are reminded, one of the very few times we're reminded of this, actually, that the show is a work of fiction. Still the highest caliber art, Leonardo da Vinci-level art, but fiction nonetheless. The title, nice double entendre, perhaps even a multi-entendre, if that's even a thing. There is, of course, no stage five, as Johnny Sack reckons a bit later. And perhaps it also alludes to the five stages of grief. Of course, nodding in part to the season one episode that references part of it directly. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. With respect to this episode, stage five could be Johnny Sack accepting his fate. Strange thing about acceptance. How it hurts and relieves in equal doses. Recognizing a negative or uncomfortable situation without trying to change it or protest it. I think Eckhart Tolle said it best. Surrender to the now. If you are not in the state of either acceptance, enjoyment, or enthusiasm, you are creating suffering for yourself and others. I know. With the fucking riddles again. Finally, the title could also be a friendly nod to the industry this series sits in. Entertainment and the sound stages that drive it. 
Silver Cup, where a lot of this show was shot, has 13 stages at their main space. And there is a stage five, or Studio Five. Okay, we open on Cleaver, the movie, or a cut of it, no pun intended. Initially, it feels like Pussy's Body Shop. I'm almost just begging for someone to say, fucking Rockford Files over here. We see Daniel Baldwin carefully making his way through a garage. Daniel Baldwin is who they cast as the boss of this thing. Sir Ben Kingsley to Daniel Baldwin. When have those two names ever been on the list before or since Cleaver? I thought it was a great meta example of reality versus fiction. For those of you not up to speed on the Baldwin Ancestry.com page, Daniel is the second oldest of the four Baldwin brothers. The other three, of course, being Alec, William, and Stephen. His filmography is a yellow pages worth of thick. But sadly, I don't remember much of his work other than being on this show. That's also saying a lot about me, actually. I don't really get out much beyond the confines of this show of ours. But Christopher knew what all the showrunners and casting directors knew before him. The name Baldwin gets projects greenlit. At a minimum, it gets you meetings. Back in the auto shop, lights flicker overhead for good measure. All about tension and stakes, right? Saw, homages all around, down to the color palette even. A three-color rule. Interestingly, the mockumentary HBO did of the film made no mention of Saw or any attributes from Saw other than showing a flashback when the pitch for the film was heralded as Saw meets The Godfather. Danny, or let's call him by his character name at this point, Sally Boy, calls out for someone named Ricky. Note the early 80s Mercedes diesel in the shop. My first car was a 1983 red turbo diesel, just like that one. Little threads of connectivity to the show all around every episode. All of a sudden, Sally Boy comes across a body mutilated and hanging from the ceiling, blood dripping everywhere. A nice bookend setup for evidently Chicken Town at the end. Guessing that was Ricky. As he takes it in, hydraulics lower the Mercedes, and a man with a cleaver for a hand climbs out of the trunk. This is Michael. Welcome to the chop shop, Kujin. That's what the moment your vision on paper becoming reality looks like. Sally Boy fires several clips at Michael, but to no avail. Just then, it's revealed Chris and company are watching a cut of the film in an editing bay. A stage five, maybe. Michael speaks. You can't kill me twice, Sally boy. I'm already fucking dead, remember? 
The guys are very happy with themselves after that line. Amused. Same way I get when I improperly work in an NBA reference and I'm probably the only one who gets a chuckle out of it. Actually, there are a few of you, and you know who you are, and you're my people. The already deadline, though, had me wondering, what did Chris decide to go with? Science or the supernatural? Recalling, of course, his soft pitch to JT in the car at proverbial gunpoint. Perhaps a bit of both, channeling his inner Melisandre. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine, Sally Boy says. A nice reminder, of course, of Richie's decree. What's mine is not yours to give me. Still chills every time. I wonder if bringing Richie back from the dead was on the table when the Sopranos brain trust was considering aspects of cleaver. Maybe a fork instead of a cleaver with egg dripping off it. Maybe call it moxie or just jacket. The part of this sequence I thought was most effective Michael says the cleaver on his arm is Sally Boy's too. And then gives it to him. Right through the skull. Even appreciated the amateur cut. That, as the mockumentary reminds us, Carmine and Chris couldn't afford a big-name director. So they were introduced to an up-and-coming one who introduced them to the guy they got. That detail is so perfect. The lowest guy on the totem pole wouldn't do it. So we introduced us to a guy who would. It's like being the last guy chosen for a pickup game and being like, nah, but let me go get this other guy. Then we see a cross and that totem Furio brought back from Italy hanging from the rearview mirror. Remembrances of things past. Then Chris. Fuck Ben Kingsley. Danny Baldwin took him to fucking acting school. Doing a great job as hype man for the talent he got. Getting reps in before sitting down with distributors. But a little of that is he's still bitter over getting the short shrift, no doubt. Even referred to Sir Ben as Brit in the mockumentary. Morgan Yam, the director is there played by actor John Woo. Not face-off John Woo, though, with an O-O at the end. But nice coincidence. Speaking of coincidences, you know Alessandro Nivola, a.k.a. Dickie Moltisanti, was in face-off? Can't make this stuff up. Alley Boy's excited. Thinks this is going to be more lucrative than the porn he and Little Carmine have put out in the past. The guys are debating about an extra scene, a bloodier one. Chris says it's better without. Real art house auteur mindset over here. Carlo's more 
Al Pacino and Scarface about it. Says audiences today love blood. Kind of took that as a high-level dig at the hits and tits brand of Sopranos audience. Also, a fitting line from a guy we just saw covered in blood not too long ago. Exhibit Fat Dom. Carmine agrees with Carlo. Wants one more sexy kill. Interesting meta art imitating life again, as he's got bloodlust for his creative pursuits, but not with respect to his ascendancy to the throne. The director Morgan recommends Michael chop up one of the women at the strip club. Who, as fate would have it, Carmine follows up with, was Sally Boy's mistress. In this moment, my mind kind of drifted toward Tracy. Chris bristles at the idea. Two extra shoot days minimum. Guy's got line producer chops, too. But Alley Boy says if it buys them a theatrical release, it's worth it. Heard that as a thinly veiled dig at suits, buyers of content, and the like. The art versus commerce argument that's been going on since time immemorial. But Chris's suit, in this case, is arguably worse. Tony, he shivers at the thought of having to borrow more money from him. That's the key issue. The two of them are already at the precipice. Can't help but wonder here, too, if he's worried about the fallout from this picture. Even just a little. The veil of art is just that, a veil. It's not armor. And that, as we'll see, is at the crux of this whole episode. Just then, T calls. The timing of this guy. His ears had to be burning, right? He called to ask about the guy with the air mattresses. A new bust-out a la David Scatino, perhaps? He's checking out a box of honeycombs in the basement. Then Captain Crunch. Reading the nutrition facts on either is moot, but he's clearly trying to justify the Captain Crunch, right? There's no competition between the two. Chris is ambivalent. Tony's out here asking about air mattresses while I'm over here like Casavetes editing a masterpiece. Tent poles versus street rip level shit. Priorities. Tony asks about the film. He is an investor, after all, and due for a return in the form of an envelope. Chris says it's awesome, but they might have to change the title. Eldridge Cleaver's estate filed for an injunction. Cleaver, of course, was a writer, an early leader of the Black Panther Party, and was also referenced earlier in the show, back in season four, watching too much television. Remember. The virility pants? Cod pieces? After returning from exile, he pivoted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and became a conservative Republican. Talk about an arc. That guy had a couple few. Chris says they're finishing the ADR after lunch if T wants to come take a look. T, of course, has no idea what that is. Chris explains, sound dubbing, automated dialogue replacement. That's 
re-recording dialogue to improve quality or make changes to the original script. That's nice. California bullshit. But T's more interested in the mattresses. Symbolic, I thought, as the end is near. It's a holiday weekend. Thousands of people will be out at the beach, he says. How is this relevant? That people take air mattresses to the beach? If so, if so, that most definitely is not California bullshit. That's some other kind of flotilla bullshit. When Chris clicks, the guys ask if T's coming down. Please, he says, you don't give a shit about production. Alley Boy echoes that. Says the whole process has been a little boring. Rich coming from guys that sit around most of the day in back rooms before heading out on their collection beats, right? Cut to a framed picture of a family of four. Johnny Sack staring at it in his orange uniform. Perhaps absorbing the humble brag, since for most people in this office, that's the last thing they want to be reminded of. Of course, it's his doctor's office, Dr. Rosen, played by actor Seth Barish, who now runs a theater company, I believe, with his wife. The news isn't good. When is it ever? I feel like if the news was good, it's an email or a phone call or an update via a portal of some kind now. His cancers spread. Lymph nodes, kidneys, and the brain. That explains the headaches, he learns. He questions the treatment to that point. It was all for nothing? Doc explains, it's the best there was at the time. But now they're out of options. Masterclass portrayal of this moment, by the way, both sides. Every time we see Johnny, we want to make jokes about his allocution, about his wife. But here, we manage to forget this is Johnny Sack. This is just a man with a short window to make amends and accept his fate. And if he's lucky, not die alone. It's stage four, the doc says. Small cell carcinoma of the lungs, an aggressive form of lung cancer commonly caused by smoking. Small cell cancers, as opposed to non-small cell, have shorter doubling times, grow faster, and spread faster. And this is not stage five. That's correct. He asks how long. The question we all want to know or wonder about but can never get a lock on. Difficult to say, Doc says, because he's seen miracles over the years. Forget the miracles. Thank you for that, Johnny Sack. Doc says three months. There's three again. Note. The two marshals behind him acknowledge each other with that news, perhaps even reflecting a little on their own impending mortality. Johnny takes it straight. No chaser. Thank you for your candor. We have a plane back to Springfield. An indication his healthcare plan is a notch above his neighbors in federal prison. Note the yard on the wall. 
black and white squares with cryptic patterns embedded in them. Obfuscation, distraction, maybe even a little bit of hope. Kind of like a broken social scene song. In the van ride to the airport, one of his guards checks in. These back-and-forth trips have created a bond of sorts, a bit of a family affair. John calls it funny or ironic, whichever. I got here, I quit smoking after 38 years, exercised, ate right, and for what? Taking a page out of Tony's book there. T does it better, but Johnny holds his own in his cover version. Next, we see an exterior shot of the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. That's the federal prison for men with compromised health. Another blend of reality and fiction. It was originally called the United States Hospital for Defective Delinquents. Pre-woke America and all. Lots of former mafia bosses checked in at one point or another. Joe Bonanno, Vito Genovese, Vincent Gigante, John Gotti. The latter three, like Johnny Sack, would die there. Inside the joint, we see Johnny Sack sitting alone before Ginny and Allegra come to visit. Love these moments before the moments. The same stuff Robin Williams talked about in Goodwill Hunting. Ginny asks about Rosen, but Johnny dances around it couple, three times. She presses, and he finally says he doesn't know, but it's not looking good. Completely broken, but holding it together. Clearly thinking with each passing moment, how will I be remembered? They want to hug him and do, but the guard warns them twice. No contact. The continued indignities. They leave, and he's alone again. Thought that was a great touch for him this episode. Multiple moments of aloneness. People come and go in the end. Check in, say hi, shed any guilt they might have had about stuff in the past, and then just go away. All this is emphasized with the great effect of the ambient TV noise in the background. It's exactly what seeing your life flashing before your eyes feels like. Then he walks over to another prisoner and asks to bum a cigarette. Waits a beat, just long enough to make you think something else is going on. Enough to make you believe he's thinking about it before he asks. Stage five. Acceptance. He rips off the oxygen tube and lights up. Back to square one. Speaking of square ones, cut to the Soprano family dinner table. Nice contrast from alone to family. The king of New York versus the head of a glorified crew. Johnny to Tony. The whole family's there, plus Blanca and Hector. They're talking about the dress code for Christopher's premiere. 
Carmelo says it should be more than just casual because of the significance of the event, the achievement. Sidebar note, AJ's especially well-lit this scene. I figured out what's religious about these scenes. Entirely unique to this show and no other. It's the offset camera and the distance from the table. Not too far, but not too close either. Just enough so we're listening in. It augments the lighting. Pulls you in so you're more than just a spectator. Tony belittles the premiere. Calls it a cast and crew screening. Bacarm pushes back, says it's in the city with an after party on some rooftop in the meatpacking district. That place is very chic now. Whatever happened there? Well, it's a transformation that began in the late 90s to an area sandwiched between Chelsea and the village. And I'm oversimplifying a bit, but culminated with the arrival of an Apple store followed by the Highline Park. Of course, it was only after the Cleaver premiere that the place really started to pop off. Meatpackers? I'm a happily married man. Blanca looks irritated with AJ when he laughs at his dad's comment. Blanca doesn't say much. It's not an ESL thing, though. She just means business. She's had an agenda worthy of The Sopranos since she burst onto the scene. No pun intended. Carm tells Meadow that Kelly's having a piece of her wedding dress used to be made into an outfit for the baby to be christened in. What an unsopranos-like touching thought. But undergirding it is something more important. But subtle. That's it. That's how we learn of the arrival of Chris's baby. Even Janice got a better welcome to the show for Nika during a montage. Just then, Tony burps awkwardly. Either physiological or the thought of Chris makes him gag at this point. Or Janice, for that matter. Only I mentioned it, not the show. Me over here doing my own special blend of reality and fiction. Either way, we're hanging on his every word. Every gesticulation as this thing winds down. Trying to outsmart Chase or somehow predict the final frame. AJ asks Meadow if she's bringing a date. She says if she can meet a normal guy, yes. Blanca deadpans. I heard that. Two sisters from another mista over here. But a couple of three things. Finn's done. And Blanca's calling out AJ in front of his parents. She's got what people of a certain age would call no chill. AJ and Tony both give her a look. Tony's look is somewhat agreeable with her point of view, but he doesn't say anything. He pivots back to Finn. He wasn't normal. But Meadow... I don't intend to discuss Finn. And that's how ex-boyfriends get written off shows. True to life in many ways. 
Carm wonders about this guy in her MCAT review. Meadow says he cares more about Okem than her. I can vouch for that statement, actually. Okem has destroyed many a collegiate relationship. Right up there with love triangles and parental intervention, a la Lan Tannenbaum. AJ could care less about the movie. He just wants to hang with celebs. Blanca's not feeling that. Why, you think you're going to sleep with Paris Hilton? You know she wanted to say fuck. But manners, the dinner table, and Hector is sitting right next to her after all. Just in terms of pure chronology, 2006-2007 was peak Paris Hilton. Meadow meows, but after Blanca leaves for the bathroom without excusing herself, Meadow doesn't want any part of that. Carm asks if they had a fight, and AJ says he doesn't know. In fairness to him, he probably doesn't. Certainly not the bigger game being played. This is in Mario Kart. Remember that speech T gave him in Johnny Cakes about growing up? This isn't a movie. A whiff of that surfaces here as well. Cut to a hospital room. Johnny Sachs sharing a room with another patient. Again, with the indignities to this guy, especially in his final stretch. Note, T had his own room in recovery. A doctor is giving the nurse instructions, and a janitor, Warren, contradicts this doctor and is called out on it. Says heparin instead of seftin because of the patient's ABG. That's arterial blood gas. Not a relative of RBG. Rest in peace. The underlying issue with this patient, also lungs. Warren, of course, is played by the late actor, director, and producer, Sidney Pollack, who passed away about a year after this episode aired, also from cancer. Being on this show was one of the last things he ever did professionally. The career choices he made were nothing short of legendary going all the way back to Jeremiah Johnson in 1972. And from there, the list goes on. Tootsie, Out of Africa, Eyes Wide Shut, Michael Clayton, considered by many to be Hollywood's last movie for adults. In many ways, I agree. I'd probably fight somebody in defense of that claim. Probably get my ass kicked, but I'd hit a few threes, maybe get to OT, decide it at the free throw line. There's a familiarity between the doc and Warren. This clearly isn't the first time he's done this. Warren heads over to Johnny Sack to change his sheets. How the mighty fall. Could actually apply to both in this frame. Former Doc Warren and Johnny Sack. What are you, the world's smartest orderly? These days I am, he says. Note Johnny Sack's reading Reader's Digest. Whatever happened there? On the cover, how doctors gamble with your life. Fitting, especially after this conversation. But back on Reader's Digest for a second. Still going strong since 1922, pretty much 100 years. Until 2009, it was the best-selling consumer magazine in the United States. But the only place I ever saw it was a doctor's office. And even those now, fewer and farther between. 
And I read a lot. So who the fuck's subscribing to that thing? Well, I went to rd.com and got a flavor for the rag a hundred years later. And there I found, among other things, pieces like where to park your RV for free. If pistachios could talk, here's what they would tell you. And how to clean your makeup brushes quickly and easily. Yep. The cobwebs are now removed. Back to Warren. He's an ex-oncologist. 22 fucking years. Specializes in the liver. He minces no words or time. Says the reason his script flipped is that he killed his wife. Because she was cheating on him with her chiropractor. He admits he was abusing cocaine and alcohol, but he came home one day and shot her four times. Twice in the head. Killed her aunt too. And then the mailman. At that point, I had to fully commit. Also potentially explains why he's in federal prison. The mailman being a federal employee. Generally, murders are prosecuted in state courts as state crimes, unless the victims are federal officials or certain other carve-outs. So how's he not confined or worse for what he did? Well, that insanity plea is something like an eighth wonder of the world with respect to this stuff. The cut to Johnny there, though, as Warren rifles off his greatest hits list, is perfect. The eye roll, thinking, this guy's better than any made guy in my crew. Should have had you around enforcing those splits on the Esplanade. Warren says he's been looking forward to meeting Johnny. Saw him on Bill Curtis, name we haven't heard since back in season three, to save us all from Satan's power. Remember the A&E crime guy? Actually, no, wait. He's mentioned in season six, too. Mayhem. I'm only a couple lapses away from Wyckoff over here. Anyway, Warren formally introduces himself. Talk about a cold open, though, right? Warren Feldman shakes his hand, asks to look at Johnny's chart. What about Gunga Din, Johnny wonders. Good reference back to season one. Livia, back soprano. Gupta? Fuck him, Warren says. Love that. Warren's impressed he got to see Rosen. That Johnny Sack flies to Cleveland for that. His expense, of course. Great doc, Warren says. He's a better man than I am, Rosen. See what I did there? Gunga Den. But he really can't walk on water. Oh, take it easy. Nobody said he was Jesus. Warren asks about the prognosis. Three months. Bullshit, Warren says. You got one to three years. With the cocktail of drugs you've been on? He continues. We tell a patient he's got three months, he lives a year. Who looks like the hero? Speaking of cobwebs, they're a move for Johnny Sack right there, too. Cut to Tony headed down the driveway to grab the paper. No next season, so pile it on, why don't you? But here it feels more like a formal retirement of this show's staple. One final day in the sun. And after that, it's stage five for it as well. 
Car slowly approaches. It's Agent Harris and Ron Goddard. Tony freaks for a second, but the sight of Harris stabilizes him. He still scans the area for a beat before locking in. Too much of this lately. They say they're interested in happenings around Port Newark. Gotta say, though, just for that, the house call was a little curious. They're concerned about what might be coming through there from the Middle East. Terror funding, they say, most of it comes from illegal enterprise. Indirectly implicating Tony and his crew in any happenings, past or present. Just enough to make him flinch. Back-channel all his contacts around those parts to make sure they're on notice and to steer clear. They give him the same pitch they gave Moltisanti. Kind of loaded, right? That they let T know they talked to Chris. And we know that Chris never said anything to T about it. And in a moment, we're even going to see Chris, who initially rebuffed them, now laughing about their arrival to check in with him. Indirectly or coincidentally sowing the seeds for their already fraught relationship. For a second, T actually considers it. I mean, he's not going to actually do it. But the exercise of imagining what-if scenarios as they're presented throughout life is a great mechanism to relax the constraints of our minds, which are usually locked in on a day-to-day grind. Also, is this another red herring for how it all ends? Feels like it. They bring up his daughter, mention the tunnels. Maybe that will incent him to cooperate. It's all very tactical, very Chris Voss. But he turns up the driveway and walks. Because there's a word for what they're asking him to do. And he won't do it. That's cooperate. He comes inside hot. Last time he's getting the fucking paper. Have the Polak come early and get it or she can clean somebody else's fucking toilets. Karm asks what happened. He says it's too dangerous. Has been for years. And there's your official retirement of an early soprano trope. Cut to the movie premiere. Carmine testing the mic. Big moment for him. But do you imagine for one second he prepared his remarks in advance? Or really just let it fly? Improv fluentially. See what I did there? The crowd is full of this thing of ours. They're at an AMC theater. Long live AMC and AMC stock. Carmine says he'd like to say a few words. Buckle up. Much like a child, a film has many parents. Wait, how do they? Never mind. Or that by a version, the film is their baby. He meant illusion, right? Now, Think about this. Something so stupid and so obvious. We fucking know it's coming, but it never gets old. We see JT in the audience, and Chris comes up to thank the man who made this all possible. JT thinks it's going to be him, of course. Like Rocky thought Tommy Gunn was going to thank him in five, but it was actually Duke he thanked. 
only in America. Here it's actually T, Chris thinks, who's pleasantly surprised. Whereas JT's crestfallen. There he goes, mythologizing his inner narrative again. Chris also thanks his other investors, at which point Sill takes a bow, among others. Then the director tries to make a speech, but an usher sweeps the mic away and the lights dim. Cue the jams. That's entertainment. Cut to mid-movie. Bobby's enthralled. So's Jan, Roe, most of the audience, really. Blanca, not so much. Pauly, mesmerized. We see Danny Baldwin looking very Tony-like in a basement with a white robe, at which point Carm leans over to Tony and says, that's you, but he doesn't believe it. Come on, Tone, huh? On screen, we hear, you find where that peasant Ovante is and you bring him to the butcher shop. That expression literally means 95 caliber, or colloquially, big shot. We also hear it in The Godfather. Paulie's phone rings and he takes it. His ringtone is Simon and Garfunkel's Cecilia. Great taste in music, but can you imagine a worse song to go off in the middle of a movie theater? Those fucking pots and pans? Note, Chris told everybody to turn their phones off. But like Warren said earlier, fuck them. To spread this comedic warm blanket out further, Polly gets into it on the phone over a Guatemalan. While on screen, Sally Boy's moving in on Michael's girl. The crux of so much. And in reality, so little. Since nothing happened. But crazy how things become untenable, warped, askew, based off assumptions and untruths. Ro looks back at Carm as Sally Boy moves in for the kiss. She's disgusted. But Carm's almost offended, put off by the fact that she even looked back at her. She made the same bed and lay in it too, for a time, with Jackie. What's she on Carmela's case for? Cut to later that night in the meatpacking district. Carmine's daughter, Alexandra, mentions the creepy figurine totem. Cornicello, if I recall correctly. And the crucifix at the end. Carmine's impressed says the sacred and the propane. She immediately looks down, not knowing what the fuck that means. Of course, we now know it has to do, in part, with the dichotomy of religion. The meaningful versus the meaningless. I liked how they showed parts of the movie throughout this episode, as opposed to a continuous whole or a long stretch of it. Almost like the main character itself, chopped up and spread out all over Canarsie. But here it's more like AMC. AJ points out lots of people are wearing t-shirts, upset about the unanimous decision to dress up. But that's David Beckham chic, bro. Ernan's drip too, I'd imagine. Blanca's hungry, but AJ says he offered her popcorn earlier. He's met with a blank stare. The two of them a dichotomy in their own right. Tony spots Chris, wags his finger, and gives him a loving headlock. 
Put that headlock in your back pocket, actually. He points out the similarities between him and Sally Boy from the film. More curious than angry. Chris calls it artistic choice. All things considered, he's proud of Chris. Says, people will be watching this thing long after we're dead and gone. Statement that looks to be a blessing and a curse. And a larger acknowledgement of this show of ours. How we're still obsessing over it more than 20 years later. Chris, switching to business of the street rip variety, when in Rome, he figures, makes a point to let him know how much vodka he boosted from this party. Even put a few cases in T's car. Wait, how do you get the keys? Also, a nice opportunity for them to reminisce about their wine boost from the Vipers. Of course, T doesn't bite. They notice Phil and his crew taking photographs with Carmine. Look at this. The family of early man. Likely referencing the book, Family of Man, that eventually became an exhibit at MoMA. Also note, Jerry's hair color changed. Wonder if Phil put his foot down, priming him for the next stage and whatnot. A Don doesn't have a naturally colored hair. Meanwhile, Larry and his girlfriend are explaining to Janice and Bobby how actors don't actually make up what they say with the same shock and awe as the Israelites watching Moses part the Red Sea. They're told what to say. Even De Niro. Terrific moment. Then, Larry Boy is confronted by a U.S. Marshal. Apparently, the terms of his bail confine him to his home. He's immediately escorted out, makes a bit of a scene. Not quite as dramatic as Johnny Sack after Allegra's wedding, not bad enough to be permanently installed on Phil's shit list. But Tony's on alert. Again, too much of this already. Phil comes over to say hello. So is Florida. Hot and sticky, like my balls. He updates T about John. But Phil's not sympathetic. He had a quintuple bypass, then an infection, and seven months of physical therapy to boot. T says he eats anything spicy, and he's back in the ER. A woe-is-me pissing contest between two bosses. T says he'd like him to start running that family of his now. But Phil says being a boss is a young man's game, lightly portending another power struggle. This isn't helpful to T. Envelopes have been light lately, more than 10% per week. Phil shrugs. He feels it too, he says. But that's what asset allocation's for. T says word on the street is that Jerry's the favorite to take over. See? Knew that sudden hair change was by design. Phil says he's his protege and won't stand in his way. T was hoping for a more full-throated endorsement, a la Caroline Kennedy for Barack Obama, but takes what he can get. 
Doc comes over to say hello. This fucking guy. Introduces Dandy to Tony. The two bosses, mano y mano. Doc tells T Danny got a ticket on the Jersey Turnpike. Broken windshield wiper or some shit. Doc says he should talk to T about it. What an insult. But T handles it in stride. Says he'll take care of it. But Doc, in just two scenes, immediately unlikable. A Ralphie template of sorts. And you just know the same fate's got to await him too. It's just a matter of time, right? Doc calls for a group photo. T tells him to chill out, but obliges. Love that little boss move by T right there. Cut to Geraldo Rivera on the TV with guest Jerry Capace, the mafia expert. They're discussing Phil Leotardo's lot in life. Another great J-cut on Phil as his status is considered on national TV. Another guest, Manny Safier, beams in from his hideaway on Bainbridge Island in Washington. Love the detail of that venue choice. Screams witness protection and then some. He's there to plug his book, The Wise Guide to Wise Guys. Of course, that's Matthew Weiner with what I believe to be a hairpiece. Can neither confirm nor deny that. Jerry and Manny exchange reluctant hellos across the ether. Competitors on a couple different levels. Geraldo calls what's going on in New York a power vacuum. Love that. It's revealed that someone's watching, but we don't know who just yet. Brilliant sequence and reveal at the end. Manny's not surprised the successor hasn't been named. He says the family's been dysfunctional for over a decade. Phil and Jerry are mentioned, as is Doc Santoro. Jerry thinks Doc's the front runner. Safier looks off to the side with that proclamation, clearly begging to differ. Manny wonders how come Carmine Jr. wasn't mentioned. But Jerry lets him know he was getting to that before being interrupted. Speaking of interruptions, just then it's revealed that Elliot's watching and silently judging their passive aggressiveness towards each other. He looks to be enjoying wine and a nice evening with his girlfriend, definitely someone considerably younger than he is. In addition to his medical degree, he's also a graduate of Hova's Ball So Hard University. Says to her, I called this Santoro thing a year ago. With the same degree of confidence as Tom Brady fans when he signed with Tampa Bay. Cut to Anthony Infante, AI, waiting for a visit with Johnny Sack. Says he'd never miss out on a chance to see Missouri. Johnny wants to talk Ginny finances for after he's gone. She's smart, he says, but business? Forget about it. Wants to put her on a monthly stipend. But AI's not feeling that so much. Wonder if there's a storyline that's going to evolve there. But like Bobby says in another episode, what's he going to do about it? Johnny Sack thinks he may still be around, thanks to Feldman's opinion. AI goes back and forth on Feldman's credibility, finally landing on, OJ's no less of a running back, right? Then, how will I be remembered? The seriousness, the concern, the resignation 
He's not so bothered about his personal life. He's wondering about his perception on the street. AI makes up bullshit that he was respected across the board, despite the allocution. Others have outright named names when faced with less than what you were looking at. He's right. A lot of hypocrisy and judgment. We can go through the list as an exercise right now and place bets on who would have said more or done more to erase years from their sentence. He starts to say something after the word but, but stops himself. Johnny won't have it. What? AI relents. Says, when he took over for Carmine Sr., people felt he changed. Became a little trigger happy. John chafes. It's a thankless job. Cut to a close-up of a cleaver mug. Merch already? Isn't the PEMDAS on that getting a franchise up and running first? Then the action figures? Tony pours himself a cup of joe. Again, little things that bookend the stuff between. Stuff like Carmela coming in, a little on edge. She's bothered by the portrayal of the guy in the movie. But wait, now it got to her? She must have talked to someone. Tony's spreading peanut butter on Ritz crackers as she explains how the boss in the movie was based on him. Still one of the best snacks on planet Earth, by the way. Award-worthy combination, like Tony and Carmela. There should be a doc on the miracle of that alchemy. Feeding fathers and sons since time immemorial. But it's interesting how he knew all this yesterday, but didn't see the problems, the permutations. Is he slipping a little? Might Wyckoff be in his future too, sooner rather than later? The contrast with Carmela seeing it clearly now is interesting. The different prisms, the optics, his obliviousness to it all. He says imitation's a form of flattery. Oscar Wilde over here, who wrote, and I love, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Carm pushing back. You think that was flattering? She's hung up on the cleaver guy, Michael. His entire motive for revenge was that Sally Boy moved in on his girlfriend. Art imitating life or forecasting it in this case. Then, as he always eventually does, he puts two and two together. The thing with Adriana? I told you it never fucking happened. Well, apparently your nephew feels otherwise, she says. Roe pointed this out to her, but if she saw it, that means other people did too. Other people. The power those two words wield across hearts and minds. T holds to his stance, comes at it from a different angle. It's a movie. It's fictional. But as she often does, she gets the last word and caps it with an exclamation point. It's a revenge fantasy, Tony, which ends with the boss's head split open by a meat cleaver. Is that the plan? Is this what makes Tony think 
I better get rid of him before he gets rid of me? You saw it there at the after party. Chris was awkward and fidgety, the reluctant thanker, all of it. Just then, the camera orbits Tony's head as he processes. All the permutations revealed through motion. Cut to the bing, a girl on a pole. Silvio's doing paperwork or what looks more like a crossword. Tony comes over and asks what he thought of the movie. Sil says Chris is the last guy he would have confused with Marty. But all in all, it wasn't bad. He's referring, obviously, to Scorsese. T asks if Chris is around. Sill, nah. He doesn't come around here no more. You know that. Well, we didn't. But now we do. The no more part. Two words that say so much. The endpoints of an entire bridge of an arc. Tea, long pause, sips his drink, thinking about nipping things in the bud, as he once said before. Then, that bald one was pretty good, huh? Still pauses for a long time, thinking about what to say. He was a mean fuck, I'll give him that, he says. Then T asks about the fiancé to get a read on Sill. But still gives nothing. Goes back to his crossword. A true consigliere. Tuned into the frequencies of what hills to die on. Cut to a diner. From a close-up of the confections on display, the camera pans over to Chris and a new Narcotics Anonymous friend in a booth. He on the outs with Murmur? This is Eddie Dunn, played by actor Christopher McDonald. Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. He was also in Chase's 2012 film, Not Fade Away. They're talking about the creative process. Well, Chris's. Shooter's kind of just listening. I said his name wrong on purpose. Chris mentions the movie Edward Scissorhands. Note he cuts off the S at the end. His revelation, what if instead of a pair of scissors, it's a meat cleaver instead. Scissorhands, of course, was a film by Tim Burton that came out back in 1990. I remember seeing that movie in the theater the weekend it came out. It was right before Christmas break. I was most definitely too young to be there, but old enough that I never forgot it. Can't believe the part went through Cruz, Hanks, and Gary Oldman before landing on Johnny Depp who was always Burton's first choice. Like Father Intentola said, any other way, it's a different picture. Burton ranks Edward Scissorhands as his favorite work. Back in the diner, this new guy doesn't look too happy to be there. Feels like he's got a gun to his head almost. Chris says, I gotta tell you, it's like I'm living somebody else's life. You and me both, pal. You're not comfortable with success yet, says Eddie. Success? Chris says, feel the fear and do it anyway. Susan Jeffers over here. Jokes aside, good book. Remember highlighting the shit out of that one. 
But what's this? Amazon reviews now? Note the music in the background is an instrumental of Dido's Thank You. I know I went off on that song somewhere in the Pada Bing backlist, but what a gem. He asks about Kelly, the baby. These two clearly go way back by soprano standards. Again, important note here, major milestone, major moment for a major character, but swept under the rug. All of a sudden, there's a baby. Chris notices a guy outside stepping out of a car on the phone, looks real official. Chris calls him his other sober buddy, but it's a fed, and Chris says them dipping in and out is fun. He's been talking to them? Is that the final shoe that's going to drop? Or is it more of the same with the anti-terrorism beat Harrison Goddard are on? Either way, the point is something's cooking. And T isn't privy. Or he kind of indirectly is now, that Harris told him. The stage is set, is all, for an OK Corral, New Jersey style. That is, of course, assuming we're making a fucking Western here. Eddie brings up the shape Chris was in just three months ago. Number three again. Juliana's mentioned, not by name, but we know who they're talking about. Chris says he's been steering clear of old habits, same people. Love that line and the truth behind it. But it's hard, he continues. They already misinterpret why I don't want to hang around so much. Fucking Polly, especially. Bottom line, they don't give a fuck. And by extension, we finally understand neither does he conveniently forgetting that oath, almost weaponizing the hypocrisy on which it stands. Speaking of the oath and hypocrisy, cut to Johnny, the allocutor, telling stories about Carmine to Warren. He's a captive audience, something he's needed for a while, you can tell. The king of New York. Carmine would keep guys around until they didn't earn anymore, he explains. And then he let them go once they dried up. That was Carmine Lupertazzi. Just then, Ginny comes in, says she's been looking all over for him when she discovers him smoking and flips. He's embarrassed, sends Warren off. His audience of one puts out the cigarette. She pleads that he not just give in. Miracles do happen, John. Not to this family, they don't. That right in front of his daughter. He used to be a pragmatist. Ginny says his negativity is what brought this on, to which he counters somewhat artfully with, all these six-year-olds with leukemia, you think it's from all their negative thinking? Great point. And then we're left with an image of him lighting up while on oxygen. Sad, and incredible. Such a frame, I had to go back and look at it again. That was my goodbye to Johnny Sack. Cut to Jerry at dinner with Silvio. Actually, probably lunch. Feels like there's light out through the windows. The night is just my Pavlovian response to this scene in a similar one-in-one. Michael at the restaurant. They're talking about Doc. Great guy, but boss material? All due respect. Still gets that line delivered right back to him. Jazz music's playing. Something about jazz this season in particular. 
in many of the episodes, an obvious ratcheting up of jazz standards. Just putting it out there because it got me thinking about jazz and things ending and how jazz represents the white space between tradition and innovation, past and future, stability and change. On those themes, Jerry goes rogue. Says he doesn't get Phil. It was right there for the taking. It was Phil's turn and his heart gives out. His heart. Guy can't get over it. He's like Kyrie Irving thinking the world is flat over here. Silvio's over the preamble and code, years alongside Tony Soprano. What? What are you getting at? Jerry says it's a metaphor. He lost his balls. This fucking guy turned on his mentor. Already? How long's this trip gonna last? Well, not long. Wait for it. Turns out, he is like Kyrie. Turning on Braun as soon as KD became a teammate. Walt fucking Whitman over here. Just then, two women show up. Return to the table, Sill's girlfriend. First we've seen that, I think. They want more wine. Jerry wonders where the waiter is. Oh, captain, my captain. Whether or not he's on sabbatical. Famous last words. Silvio wonders about the Sangiovese wine. They had at Quattro Gatti, where old world meets new world on East 81st Street since 1985. Just then the audio cuts just like it did in Godfather right before Michael shoots Salazzo and McCluskey. It's like we're in an inner ear or something, the shrill, droning sound. You don't even hear it when it happens. Silvio is splashed with blood, takes a moment to process what just happened, as much as one can when shots are fired and blood is splattered across your person. Then looks up. We see a lone gunman unloading clips into Jerry Torciano. Note, the waiter behind him stands there a little too comfortably before backing away. Just saying. I've been playing a lot of Clue with the kid, and that motherfucker looks suspicious. Like an accomplice or something. Jerry withstands a lot of blows, but is finally laid to rest atop a plate of food after he gets a close-up shot to the back of the head. Feels like an homage of some kind, right? The plate, the food. Sill heads out the front, almost nonchalantly. This comes with the territory. Part of the job. All that. The shooter heads out the back. Note, putting his hand on the glass on the door to the kitchen. Fingerprints. Unless the waiter wipes them off. Note, everybody leaves the scene except that waiter who peeks up over a table to take in the aftermath like a jack-in-the-box. Cut to Tony at a golf club, asking for five dimes apiece on three NFL games. Nice touch as Jerry just got five dimes of a certain kind of his own. Also a subtle setup for a storyline to come ahead. A whole episode is devoted to it. Tony's gambling woes. Little Carmine pulls up, orders healthy. Tea orders a cheesesteak. On purpose, more than out of a burning desire, I'd imagine. It's almost a reminder that he's supposed to be his father's son. Fuck out of here with that seared this and seared that and fresh greens. T's really pissed. Doc Santoro got one of his own guys, Sill, in the crossfire of his turf war? This after hugging him for a photo op? 
The fucking balls. He tells Carmine to step up and take control of this leadership void. Who, make no mistake, is an easy option for T. Someone he can control, extract easy cash from, or leave money off the table. Get your hands around this thing, he says. You know you got the support. Carmine smirks. Thinking, I'm the guy he's talking about to run this thing now? You never thought you'd mutter those words, did you? Taking us back, of course, to the little Carmine, Johnny Sack, debacle. Carmine bows out, though. In probably one of his best moments. Not just because it's relatively blunder-free, but because it's a real human moment. He's flattered, but boss, not so much. Not since Doc cemented his position. Like the choice of that word. Very foreshadowy. T says Phil was bad enough, but fucking Doc, come on. Then, Carmine goes into a story about a dream he had. His pop's 100th birthday, even though he'd been dead for years. He talks of a present he gave to his dad. A mellifluous box. Huh? His dad looks at it, disappointed. There's nothing in the box. Go fill it up. Come back when I'm 200. At which point, T interrupts. So go for it. Fulfill that part of yourself. Pokes into his sternum as he says it. His own, not Carmine's. Then Carmine breaks into another story. Very allegorical today. Talking about rituals, his kids, boarding school. He says he comes home from work, strips down, jumps in the pool every day. Nicole brings him a scotch and water, and they talk. But one day, fighting with Johnny, he skipped the pool and crashed on the bed. Nicole came over and said, give it a rest. I don't want to be the wealthiest widow on Long Island. Sad, but also kind of funny, since it's fair to assume there are far wealthier widows on Long Island. But like Tom Petty saying, it's good to be king of your own little town. All this to say, that moment changed him. He cried, he says. Tony takes it all in. Carmela never says anything like that to him. Not in so many words, always bits and pieces at best, scattered all over North Caldwell instead of Canarsie. It's usually always about protecting her interests, her security. Carmine says the dream with the empty box, it wasn't about being boss. It was about being happy. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. The most profoundly true and accurate and malaprop free thing Carmine has ever said happens to also be one of the best lines in the show. And one of the most anti-nihilistic antidotes to the cloud of Livia Soprano that has followed this whole series. Long beat. Cut to Johnny Sack in a hospital bed. Fresh off that sentiment of happiness. Talk about giving with one hand and taking with the other. This show giveth and taketh away 
before you get a chance to blink. Ginny's on her way out. Warren comes over to see how things are going. She's distraught. And he offers up an explanation about the smoking. Has to do with control, he says. He's a leader. It's an attempt to die as he lived. Love that. On his terms. Control. Like that personal anecdote about the kitchen counters thing I talked about last time. She compares her losing weight to this. I did something for him. He can't reciprocate. But Warren sees Dr. Gupta creeping and scoots off before offering any form of comfort or closure. Cut to Carmela snuggling with Caitlin, Christopher's baby, Caitlin Moltisanti. Wonder if she's at the gravesite in that still we saw in that teaser for many saints. Carm's given her back to her parents after a nice time babysitting. Chris asks her about the spec house, again with the spec house. She got two offers. He calls her Ivana Trump, who I would get into, but who gives a fuck? Long beat. She checks to make sure Kelly's far enough away. She lets him know how disappointed she is with that movie. Chris denies it all. Says he didn't even write it. But she gets technical. Story by Christopher Moltisanti. In the real world, that refers to anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the story. Whereas written by refers to the actual person who wrote the screenplay. Unless it was an adaptation, in which case that person gets a screenplay by credit. But what am I, the WGA now? Speaking of, all that title mumbo-jumbo he counters, that's just for the Writers Guild health insurance. But Carm doesn't buy it. Come on, you can't be serious. She's an Oriental, for Christ's sake. Carm asks if he's heard from aid. He gets defensive. She left me for some other guy. Carmela is like this Trojan horse to the past. Little by little, chipping away at things unresolved. In a very TV way, actually. But done so more as a nuisance, right? Greater forces are at work. Bigger, more important, sopranos stuff. But these little things chip away at the edges and just provide a great mixture. Is it any wonder, Carmela says disapproving of Chris and his checkered past. Mind you, while she holds his new baby. Her mother is so upset she's practically delusional. She's convinced herself that Aid is dead. Chris gets defensive. You're my cousin and I love you, but I don't like what you're inferring. Either with the movie or with how I treated Adriana. Wait, treated? I thought she did something to him. Did Carmela catch that slip? He storms out with the car seat, but sans baby. His baby. But, benefit of the doubt, Kelly's still there. Cut back to Johnny Sack. The way the show says goodbye, right? He's in worse shape, more pale. His breathing is labored. Warren comes by with a book. Billy Bathgate by E.L. Doctorow what I like to think of as a departed style or departed adjacent story. Dr. O, of course, was a godfather of historical fiction. 
and evidently notoriously difficult to adapt to screen. Warren tells him about Jerry Torciano, very matter-of-factly, like he saw it on SportsCenter or something. Johnny can barely talk at this point, and you begin to wonder, will he die in comedy or with a shred of dignity? Warren says he'll see if he can get Gupta to update the Beckle event. Meds to help with breathing. Johnny's sure he's dying. Apparently, he can see it and hear it when it happens. Warren acquiesces, says the aggressiveness surprises him, and that he's got to concur with Rosen. Doing exactly what he told Ginny Johnny needed to do, die as he lived, a leader. He can't let go of his prominent past, even if he's committed a multi-homicide. Johnny Sack looks sad, but accepting. Vince Curatola played the heck out of this episode. And his entire run, for that matter. He offers Warren thanks, and that's it. He's left to die alone. The king of New York. With exactly zero subjects coming by or giving a fuck in his final hours. Morbid as it is, moments like these on screen tend to make me look inward and wonder what my version of that will look like. Cut to JT Dolan's front door getting a pounding. Always go back to, you ducking me? (laughs) Fucking love that. He sleepily walks over to answer the door, leaving his bedfellow in suspense. It's who else but Chris. He's freaked, says JT's got to tell T the whole thing about Sally Boy banging the fiancé was his idea, not Christopher's. JT says it wasn't his idea. Every writer, of course, clamoring for credit on every good idea while wiping their names off bad ones faster than Paulie might sanitize his table space before sitting down to eat. Chris explains the stakes. He probably thinks I put it there to embarrass him. It was just an idea, he says. He doesn't have a clue where it came from. Isaac Newton invented gravity because some asshole hit him with an apple. Fantastic bit of revisionist history referring to Newton's theory of gravitation and the story about him watching an apple fall from a tree. JT pushes back. It's bad enough I don't get credit for my own ideas. Now I'm supposed to take responsibility for some shit that's going to get me in trouble? Fuck that. I mean, he already took his car. What more can Chris possibly do to this guy? Well, turns out a lot more. And it starts here. JT lights a cigarette. Chris pulls an award off the shelf. Uh Uh-oh. Why'd you turn your fucking back on this guy like email Kolar, JT? Actually, does it even really matter at this point? Chris asks what the Humanitis Award is, making it sound more like a disease than prestige. JT corrects him. Humanitas, from the Paulist Brothers, a Catholic society. He begins to explain, but Chris smashes his face with it. One of... Chris's seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, a baptism by fire of sorts. He storms out, leaves the door open, signature pep in full form. Back on tea and Sill at the Bing, Sill's recounting the events at the restaurant. He didn't know what happened until after the shot was fired, he says. It was fucking weird. A phrase that we might come to hang on 
at the end. Now, this coupled with Bobby's line, you probably don't even hear it when it happens, perfectly explain one point of view on the final outcome. And there's no worthwhile way to refute that. But to say that it's not the only valid or interesting or possible point of view. We've been invited into this series. It's demanded a lot of its audience since the beginning. It's never told us or directed us on how to think or what to think. It simply led us and presented us with a story and enabled those of us that assembled all the frames as equally important and intentional moments to have a discourse within ourselves about what this all means. And that's the key. It means what we want it to mean and nothing else. That's the gift. That's the reward. I'll stop here and save the rest of this for later. JT comes over. Tony calls him TJ Hooker. That, of course, is the 80s cop on TV played by William Shatner. Also starred Heather Locklear. Whatever happened there? JT corrects him. JT, not TJ. A lot of balls. Says he's there looking for Chris. The gang is, of course, surprised he said to meet him at the Bing. Remember, he doesn't come around anymore. JT says his fucking Verizon is acting up. Then a zeitgeisty occurrence, but doesn't feel like much has changed. He asks to wait with them. They offer him a chair. He orders a Diet Coke and asks them what they thought of Cleaver. Paulie chimes in. I hope we're going to see some money soon. Awkward silence. What are the actual economics of a film like that? You hope for a decent theatrical haul. But beyond that, it's just licensing it out to various program buyers. And eventually, all the platforms that have spread out across our media landscape. There are homes for it. I mean, not Criterion Collection or even Blumhouse, but there's homes. JT brings up the fact that he's just the writer. Low on the totem pole, as it were. Then, he sneaks in a line about the boss, Sally Boy. Says he stole that whole motif from Broderick Crawford in Born Yesterday. Garson Kanan, 1950. It's terrific, he says. Kanan, by the way, was an uncredited writer on the film, like JT. But he wrote the stage play it was based on. The anti-hero stock and trade in that movie, similar to Tony, was a junkyard operation. You know, for the W-2s at least. Judy Holliday is the star opposite Broderick Crawford, and Paulie confuses her with singer Billy Holiday. Again, JT corrects him. Of course, Paulie doesn't like it. Not from an outsider. I never seen it. Why would I be confused? Anyway. Bottom line, JT lands a clean punch. The whole cuckolding of the fiancé in Cleaver was based on the dynamics of that film. Gotta say, pretty well-constructed escape hatch to try and save Chris's ass. 
Tony digests it. Great shirt, by the way. The purple with the black stripes. So this whole thing was your idea. JT holds up a glass. But tees on to him. Or at least suggests as much. What happened to your head? Bad lie. Says, cabinet, duh. You'd expect a more crafty and couched response than that from a writer. Especially after he just sold a decent half-baked pitch. Collapsed that thing like a house of cards as soon as he said, cabinet. Tony smiles. He knows. If I see Chrissy, I'll let him know you're looking for him. Meaning, get the fuck out now. Cut to later that night. Tony's watching the very movie JT brought to his attention. And we overhear the scene about a guy who's had people killed before. A possible setup in play? He's eating ice cream, likely Turkey Hill, while thinking about his turkey neck of a nephew. Smash cut to T in Melfi's office. He knows it was Christopher. Like Fredo. He broke his heart. This is the image of me he leaves to the world? Point being, even if he didn't write it, he signed off on it. Brings up how he remembers when he was born. How he would hold him in his arms. SOS, right? This is trending badly for Christopher. Melfi points out he always talks about him more like a son. Perhaps a way to recalibrate things in Tony's mind. Like, could you, would you actually hurt a son? He was, he says, especially after his dad died. He was little. I used to give him rides, pedal him around back when Satrialis made deliveries. But then, all those memories are for what? For what? Favorite cap to many conversations lately. Especially interesting since we're nearing the end. All of this conjecture, analysis, struggle. For what? Melfi acknowledges his hurt, carefully navigating what could quickly unfold into a mandated report. His dad, Dickie, was like my me to him. A mentor. Yeah, but more than that, a friend. A fucking guy you could look up to. And the hope is that you pass that shit down. The respect and the love. And all I did for this fucking kid, and he fucking hates me so much. She says she's sure he loves him too, on some level. At which point, T kicks the DVD of Cleaver over to her side of the table and says, take a look and judge for yourself. Sidebar, I noticed two books were especially well-lit on the wall behind Tony. One by Echo Heron, who usually writes nonfiction, nurse-centric books. And another called Office Hours. No connection whatsoever other than I noticed them. And thought about them for a minute. 
thinking maybe they would be keys or triggers to something in one of the remaining episodes. Basically, what I'm saying is I'm sticking a placeholder of sorts on the pod for me to come back to later on the off chance something clicks. She says she's not going to watch it. Not a fan of horror, he asks. I thought that was interesting. In a way, she is, right? This journey with Tony has been one whole what lies on the other side of that door after another, week after week, year after year. T gets angrier, more horrific. I think he fucking despises me. The look on his face. He's got to nip this in the bud. But when? And how? Does Melfi capture here that he might want to do something about it? Act on it. It's pretty obvious he wants to see me dead, he says. Of course she sees it coming. Without invalidating your feelings, she says. Is it possible on some level you're reading into all this? Trying to de-escalate. Also a brilliant reminder to all of us, me, those of you listening to this, that the show's super self-aware about taking itself so seriously. Even though scores of us continue to do just that. No, she drops that without outright asking, is he, Chris, in any kind of danger? Lest she be the one to plant the idea in his head, on the off chance it wasn't there already. To which T says, I've been coming here for years. I know too much about the subconscious now. That felt like a warning and a threat. Cut to Johnny surrounded by family, both daughters and Ginny, who looks to be cleaning his shoes, those Vans knockoffs. He reads GQ, probably knows how unacceptable those are. Calls out for his mother, says he sees her. They think he's hallucinating. Recall, T saw a version of his mother in a similar state too. Ginny reaches into her purse to offer him a cigarette in that moment. She's at her own version of stage five too. Acceptance. Kristen Milati, daughter number two, with the chopped hair. My hand's up like Polly right now. Still stunning if you ask me. But that's it. We're left with John and a cigarette. Poetic. Cut to T and guys playing pool in the back. Anthony Infante drops by to let everyone know about John. Tony says he was a great guy. Sorry for your loss. A lot of sorry for your loss one-offs coming up. They offer a toast. Tony, classically, predictably. What are you going to do? Paulie, self-satisfied. I beat cancer, but it took him out. <laughs> That's one way to say goodbye. Ride the painted pony, let the spinning wheel glide. Of course, 
incorrectly appropriating a lyric from the song Spinning Wheel by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel spin. Then later, catch a painted pony on the spinning wheel ride. But perhaps most importantly, and the song tells us this at the top, what goes up must come down. Then, one of the most iconic ending sequences of the series, if not TV as a whole. The combination of frames, cuts, music, economy of words, the context of where we are in the series, other shoes dropping. Cut to Phil reflecting on his brother Billy to some kids. We see his picture up on the wall. They're celebrating what would have been his 47th birthday. Kids, party hats, the whole deal. All the kids are nieces and nephews, and on cue, they blow out those 47 candles. Like those 47 Ronin avenge their leader's death. Phil climbs up a ladder and places his urn on a shelf so he can be part of the place forever. This, his favorite place. Even more so than Shea fucking Stadium. Then, in a curious turn, he asks the kids if they know who Leonardo da Vinci was. A few raise their hands. One kid says, yeah, he wrote the Da Vinci Code. Phil's wife, Patty, nah, another person wrote that. But it's a hideous, sacrilegious book. That person, of course, was Dan Brown. Himself an Episcopalian, until he learned about a thing called science. A little girl reminds us that Da Vinci was a painter of the Mona Lisa. Why is it called that, by the way? The painting was of a woman called Lisa Gherardini. And Mona, in Italian, is a polite way to say ma'am or madam. Fun trivia. Do you know where it is on permanent display? Cue the Jeopardy music. It's been in the Louvre since 1797. Next. Phil goes full Robert Carroll mode and starts writing Da Vinci's biography. Says he was much more than a painter. He did medical drawings and designed tanks, a true polymath, and a great Italian. And that their lineage ties back to him. That's right. Originally, they were Leonardo's. But many years ago, when Phil's grandpa came over from Sicily, they changed it at Ellis Island to Leotardo. Why did they do that for? Because they're stupid, that's why. And jealous. They disrespected a proud Italian heritage and named us after a ballet costume. Because they're stupid, that's why. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like they made his name Leotardo just so he got to say that line one day. It is so simple, but so perfect. And the fact that the audience he's expressing his displeasure to are a bunch of kids makes it even better. Who are clamoring for cake, by the way. After some rote affection from his wife, Patty, Phil lets up. Let's the kids have at it. Moments later, Phil's at the bar alone. 
the overhead shot, the red countertop, him looking up, the rule of thirds again. He's staring up at his brother's picture. This one has a rosary around it. Butch comes over, asks how he's doing. Phil says he wished he could do things over. He compromised everything away. Regrets. I've had a few over here. 20 years inside. Not a fucking peep. For what? There's for what again? To protect the likes of Rusty fucking Milio? Doc Santoro? Butch, at this point, in full Silvio mode? You were a man, Phil. That's saying a lot nowadays. The way he says a lot. Butch indicating a point of agreement or alignment with Tony. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Long beat. The smoke. Phil brings up Tony B again. Old habits die hard. He murdered Billy. And what did I do about it? If we're keeping tabs, though, all due respect, he did beat Benny to within an inch of his life. He managed to squeeze T a little when he was in recovery. And Tony B was packaged and delivered to him. Just not the way he wanted. Sometimes I think it's in my DNA, he says. My family took shit from the Medigans the minute we got off the boat. Note, too, he hasn't mentioned Jerry. And there was no funeral for Jerry. This was his protege. Someone he wouldn't stand in the way of being boss. Might he have learned of his views on Phil not stepping up through back channels? Guys gotta wonder, is all. He brings up Leotardo again. Leotardo, for him, was where everything went south. And then, the music. A song Chase evidently heard while cleaning his garage in 1983 and filed away to put in a show one day. Evidently Chicken Town. It's actually a poem surrounded by sounds that grab you by your inner organs. The ultimate anthem for the regularness of life. The futility, the frustration, the edginess. Want to watch Clark recite the poem on screen? Check out Anton Corbin's 2007 film, Control. It comes in gently over. That's my fucking legacy. Then the lean back on the drum fill. The reflection. No more. The way Butch looks at him, as if he's witnessing the rising of a phoenix or some shit. Feels like Jay-Z in that song, What It Feels Like with Nipsey. Shit ain't gonna stop because y'all spilled blood. We gonna turn up even more since y'all kill cuz. Then a beautiful camera pan of the fallen leaders and future leaders of this thing of theirs. Carmine, Billy, John Sacramoni. 
Again, no Jerry, though. Then a fade cut to the christening gives you the same feeling a wave does when you turn your back to the sea and let it just hit you. Again, Godfather vibes aplenty. That moment Chris and Tony have, Jesus. The choice to turn up the song in this moment is one of the single best decisions of the series in my mind. Then that wide shot pulling away from the church, chills. The word bloody over and over again as we fade to black is perhaps a wonderful nod to the parallel baptism scene in one, the one with the Mo Green special. Earlier, T asked about Melfi's appetite for horror movies. In this last sequence right here, there's more haunt and anticipation and chill than any horror movie that ever came out before or since. A christening and a reluctant hug. Beginnings and ends. The sacred and the profane. The bloody kids, the bloody scene, the bloody speed, the bloody weight, the bloody weight, the bloody view, the bloody food, the bloody clubs, the bloody neighbors. The bloody days are bloody long. It bloody gets you bloody down. The bloody train is bloody late. You bloody wait. You bloody wait. You're bloody lost and bloody found. Stuck in fucking Soprano Town. <laughs> That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.